As we turn in the Word together, we're going to look at Genesis uh, chapter 4. You can follow along on the screen or you can pull one of the uh, Bibles out of the pew rack in front of you. It's found on page 4. That should be fairly easy. And I'm just going to read the first uh, 10 verses. Now, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, you uh, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And Cain uh, spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. May God help us to understand this is word. Now, if you were around in 1985 and aware of what's going on in uh, Hollywood, they produced a blockbuster called Back to the Future. In uh, that movie, uh, Michael J. Fox plays a character named Marty McFly, who is incredibly embarrassed by his dad. If you know Marty's dad, he has been bullied his whole life by a man named Biff uh, ever since high school. And uh, Marty uh, just doesn't want to be part of that scene anymore. He knows a, a crazy scientist who owns a DeLorean that travels through time. And so Marty thinks that's a way to escape. He ends up in 1950, which is close to the date that his father uh, was bullied by Biff and set this course, this story that defined uh, Marty's dad as a weak person. You know the rest of the story. Uh, Marty uh, sets out to get his father to stand up to the bully to change the story that changes the definition of what it means to be a McFly. Well, rather than tell you that story, I'd rather you understand something about why we don't like weakness. We want to change the story so that we're not weak or at least not seen as weak. Stories have the ability to define us. Stories have a way that if they're believed, if they're taken all the way into our hearts, that they shape the heart itself. In fact, that's what we've done to date in talking about our renew. We're, we're three weeks in 
And we said there's a story that is in chapter 3 that defines humanity by disobedience to God. That is, that we became unacceptable to our Creator because of sin. Because we said to God, you're not enough. I want more. And that has come to define humanity. And then last week we said there's a story of redemption, and we just began to talk about that story. And so I want to further that story with you this morning. But understanding our hatred for weakness, or at least being seen as weak, is antithetical to the story of the gospel. In fact, we said last week that the gospel was only for the spiritually weak. But especially so for those who are actually weak, physically weak. You see, being strong or projecting strength leaves out our need for grace. Paul says, when I am weak, he is strong. The gospel message, the gospel story takes weak people and doesn't make them strong people. The gospel takes weak people and makes them new people. And that is very different. It does so by giving us a new reputation, a new status, a new identity. That's why Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5 that if you're in Christ, that is, if you're a Christian... You're a new creation. The old things, the old things that defined you are gone. And the new things have come. Today, we're going to examine how that happens. What's the, what's the way in which weak people don't become strong, but become new? The Bible calls that justification. I know that's a particular word you don't use on the street. What we use on the street is to justify or justice. The idea behind justification is a legal term that a judge declares you something. And in this case, declares you right, declares you acceptable. And when in the context of the Bible, it's talking about how God sees our unacceptability and somehow declares us acceptable. This morning, I want to show you how incredibly practical that truth is for our lives. By looking at the story that is found in Genesis 4, where two Real-life historical figures, they're not imaginary, they're not a legend, they're not a myth, two real human beings that lived in the context of history, but they also represent two ways to justify. Two ways that we have sought to justify ourselves. Or two ways of justification. One is that of work. What you can do. The other is faith. Something you cannot do. 
something that is done for you that you receive by faith. Hebrews 11 will say it this way. Abel's offering was more acceptable to God than Cain's. The question is, why? Why was Abel's offering and Abel himself accepted, but Cain was not? And Cain's offering was not. But in order to understand justification, we have to understand why we need justifying. In case you weren't here two weeks ago, when I told why we need justifying, I have to go over a little ground. This particular passage gives us an incredible image of our unacceptability and what caused it. Did you see it? Verse 7. If you do not do well, sin, that which causes our unacceptability to God, is crouching at the door. Sin is a crouching tiger. That's the image that Genesis 4 gives us of the power of sin in our lives and in the world in which we live. But what does that mean? A crouching tiger is sin. And that is is that simply that sin is not simply something we do, something that we commit, something that we practice. Sin is a power at work in us. Every time you commit a sin, you know this is true, and if we had time, we could do testimonies here. Every time you do a sin, it becomes easier and easier to do that same thing again. The more you do something, the more the easier it becomes to do the same thing. Whether that's good or bad. And therefore, the point is this. You don't simply do sin. Sin also does you. It means that sin leaves a mark on the soul of humans. It's an indelible stain. Sin becomes a continuing presence in our lives. We are to avoid sin like the plague. You ever heard that? Because sin is a plague. Sin comes into us and it stays. It corrupts us. It changes us. But it not only is a power, he says that sin crouches. It hides out of your sight. Have you ever watched a cat stalk its prey? When we, Kathy and I, and our children lived in Murfreesboro, we bought a house that backed up to a farm that had roaming animals on the farm. And what happened was that we got the field mice coming in the house. That is, they found ways to get in the house out of the field. And so we said, we need to get a mouser. And so we went to the local shelter and got a cat and turned it into a mouser. Now, if you know anything about a cat, they love to show off their trophies. And, and so they would bring these mice to the house, and you could hear them on the outside of the door. The cat would meow in a certain way because its mouth was filled with a mouse still alive. So we learned not to open the door when the cat made that sound. But I like to watch it stalk. 
You know, the field had high grass. The cat would get down low, just waiting for the prey to cross close enough to get. That's the image that God wants us to have here of how sin hides in your life. How? We all have blind spots. We all have character flaws that are affected by sin that has come into our lives, either done to us or we do, and we can't see them often. Their will is to harm us. Their will is to move us further and further into sin. Let me give you an example of myself. I'm an incredibly logical person. That doesn't mean I'm science-oriented. Not at all. That would be a lie. But I do see things in sequence. And I see things in strategy. I'm not an incredibly emotional person, except in a few instances, emotion tends to overtake my logic. At least these are the dots that I'm finding. In one case, if I'm in a discussion with someone who tends to speak authoritatively. Oh, I've got to stay right here. That's going to be a problem for me. <laughs> someone authoritatively, someone who um, thinks in binary terms, yes, no, right, wrong, things like that, I tend to get defensive, emotional, to the point where it's not even makes sense. The, the, the evidence doesn't warrant it. Another example for me is I always, you know how somebody says I love the underdog? I don't just love the underdog. I tend to protect the underdog. Even when the evidence says that nobody's attacking. It's just a perception. And I know why both of these are true. I had a, I had a father-in-law that was very, a stepfather who was very uh, authoritative and black and white. And was very abusive. I, I uh, uh, had my brothers and sisters that I uh, left the home when I was 16 and left them vulnerable uh, to that man. And so I know why I do those two things. Even in the evidence of, uh, uh, to the contrary, that's when I get emotional. And when I get emotional, I sin. That is the crouching tiger's. For me, what are they for you? Do you know? You see, if you if you don't know what the crouching tigers are for you, you're already dead meat. And you know that's true. If you have been in, uh, there's a beautiful park. This isn't in the notes, but it's a great it's a great illustration. In South Africa, there's a great park called the Kruger Park. And when I used to go to South Africa, um, the Kruger Park. Uh, bordered on Mozambique. And Mozambique was a communist, repressive, oppressive government. And so people would flee Mozambique to South Africa that was just becoming democratic. And apartheid was coming down. And so people were willing, by the hundreds, to cross the park where all of the lions and uh, uh, cheetahs All the big five hunted at night. One out of every hundred made it through the park. 
if you don't know they're there, you won't be prepared for when they show up. And that's why you're already dead meat. It's important for you to know, for me to know, what are the things, what are the character flaws, what are the blind spots that are crouching, that want to, to destroy? If you can't identify them, if you can at least identify them, then you can at least know where they are and what they can do. Back to our passage. Not only, not only has sin got a power and wants to subdue and control and destroy, but it's very subtle. Look, Abel is accepted by God, Cain is not. Abel's offering is accepted, Cain is not. What's the difference between these two guys? What's the difference between their offerings? Truth is, it's hard to tell. One is a farmer, one's a rancher, one's a shepherd. Both make offerings to God, so what's the problem? It's very subtle. Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil. You see that in verse 3? He brought some of the fruit of the soil. Abel, on the other hand, in verse 4, brought the firstborn and the fat portions of the firstborn. That is, not only did he uh, sacrifice the firstborn sheep of the spring... But he even brought the fat portions that typically you uh, uh, discard or you keep uh, for special use. He he gave that as well. And and many people say, well, King's uh, uh, um, Abel's offering was a better offering. It doesn't say that it was a better offering. It said it was a more acceptable offering. And that's different. It's not about the quality of the offering. It was about the heart of the offerer. And that's why it's so subtle. It's so easy to miss what's going on here. When when Cain offered his offering, those of you who come from farm backgrounds, you know your crops don't all come in at the same time. Those of us who did not grow up on farms, we think... On a certain day every year, your crop's ready to harvest. Kind of the way you go and you flip a switch. That's not the way it happens. It A little bit, and then a lot, and then the end of the harvest season. So you harvest it at different times. Well, Cain harvested his crop, and then he decided to give a portion to God. That is, he waited until the harvest was done. And then he calculated how much I, I should offer to the Lord. And so he's, there's no trust factor. It's a, it's a science. It's a math problem. It's a, it's an algorithm for him. Abel, on the other hand, it says that he gave the firstborn. Well, you know that if you have a bunch of sheep, in the springtime, uh, they don't birth all of them at the same time. You know, that they don't all say it's time for everybody, for you sheep, all to, to have your children, your little lambs. No, it comes a little bit at a time, and then another time, and then another time, all spring long. Well, what Abel did is he took the very first ones that were born, before any of the rest were born, and offered them, not being assured yet, 
that there would be any more births. And what is that? That's trust. That's faith. That's why Hebrews 12 says is that, that Abel gave his offering in faith and Cain did not. Cain calculated his fundamental trust was in himself because he waited until everything was harvested and then gave a slice. But Abel trusted that God would bless if he gave the first without any true assurance there would be more. You see, there are two reasons why people make offerings to God. One is a response to salvation, and the other is to earn that salvation. What do I mean? You remember the story uh, in Luke 15 of the elder brother? I, I think that parable is mis-entitled uh, in your translation. If you look above verse 11, it'll say the parable of the prodigal son. It's really a parable of two prodigal sons. We don't think of the second son, the elder brother, as a prodigal. We tend to think of the younger brother because he literally leaves home with the money, wastes it, comes back, repents. Dad says, my son who was dead is now alive. Let's throw him a party. When the elder brother hears about the party, he says to his father, you have not thrown a party for me and my friends. I have done everything you have asked. It's just another way of running from God. Instead of leaving the place, do everything that God, that your father says so that your father owes you. Isn't that what the young son said to his father? He says, Father, I'm going to get 40% of your inheritance, so give it to me now. The older brother is saying the same thing. You owe me because I've been obedient. God owes me because of what I have done. That's Cain's response. Look at how he responds to God in verse 9. God comes to him and, and uh, asks him, what's going on? Why are you so angry? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? If you give me that command, Cain's angry. It's hard to see on the surface because we're talking about the heart. And the heart is a little deeper than what we can see in someone's behavior. Do you notice there's not a happy ending to the story? In verse 10, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It's not a happy ending for Cain. But there is hope for us Cains. You see two things about God in, in this passage. One you see is tremendous mercy, but you also see is tremendous justice. You see, the fact that if you're a Christian, you're a Christian, that's mercy. But the way he saves you is not mercy. The way he saves you is justice. He comes to Cain and he, and he says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? God's seeking to get Cain to understand his heart. Look at what sin has done to you, Cain. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. For, for what? Mercy? No, justice. Where injustice is done, it cries out to God. You know every lynching that has happened here in this country will have to give an account. Every lyncher, every mob, everybody who stood around and watched the lynching is going to have to give an account. Every genocide in this world 
where people have sought to wipe out an ethnic group or a race or a people, they're going to have to give an account. God is not going to overlook genocide. God is not going to overlook abuse. Every abuser is going to have to give an account before God. Every oppressor that has ever oppressed people is going to stand before God and have to give an account because of justice. God says, I will make it right. In order to make it right, God's justice has to be upheld. How in the world is he going to make it right? You and I look at our papers and we look at our own stories and and we seem there's no justice. Unless you look at the story of Jesus himself and see that he came into the world full of canes as another Abel. He was murdered just like Abel. Hebrews 12 says that God is the judge of all men. And through Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Did you hear that? He's comparing what Jesus did on the cross to Abel's death. Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is the ultimate Abel, the only true innocent person who has ever lived. The way to make it right, Abel's death was for Jesus to come to be a better Abel. The only way Abel's death will be just is if Jesus dies and saves the Cains of this world. Do you remember that great verse in 1 John 1, 9 that we often quote? If we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Did you notice in order to be forgiven, it was not based on mercy? It was based on his justice. Faithful and just. God is under no obligation to be merciful to you or to me. You are forgiven out of justice. There is a blood that cries for justice from the cross. Justice will not allow two payments for the same sin. Jesus took your sin so you wouldn't have to. And God is not up there now keeping an account of your sins and saying, this one was not covered. This is too much. That's why it had to be Jesus, the Son of God, who died on a cross. So it could be of infinite worth to cover infinite sin. So that Paul will say there is therefore now no condemnation. How in the world could Paul say that in a world of sin? Of his own sin. He just wrote Romans 6 and 7. How in the world could he turn around and say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Because he knew God could not require two payments for the same sin. This is incredibly practical. Let me give you an illustration, another story. I told you weeks ago that my uh, stepfather was incredibly abusive, uh, beat me often. I would love to go back and fix that. I wish I could have a DeLorean 
that could pick up that kind of speed. I wish I could have stayed there, not as a 12-year-old, but older. Everybody wants their story to change. It has. Not because I got in a DeLorean. Because Jesus did. He came here to live a life that I did not live. To die a death. I did not die. And the Father gave me that righteousness. So when he sees me, he sees his son. Not a son. His son. With all of the perfections of Jesus, all of the obedience of Jesus. So when the Father looked at Jesus and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, he is saying that about you. My stepdad is dead. I cannot make it right. In this life, he cannot be held accountable for what he did to me. My blood cries out for his justice. But God promises to make it right. Christ's blood has cleansed me. And if you are in Christ, he has cleansed you. Not only of what you have done, but what has been done to you. And therefore, you have a new story. It's hard to live with that reality because we don't see these tigers that are always trying to tear us apart. And so you and I need friends. You and I need people who don't just say, be warm and be filled, I'm praying for you, but literally know you and love you and will say you're acting out of accord with who you are. Those are people who truly love you. They are your brothers and your sisters. And that is the meaning of the church. I was asked this week, why be a member of a church? I'm not fast on my feet, but that is the answer. Because if you don't have brothers and sisters in your life, the crouching tiger is waiting to consume you. You're already dead meat. We love you. We want the best for you. And we want you to know your story as it was written by God, not by man. But you are going to have to get involved. You're going to have to walk through the hard door of getting close to others, as painful as that might be for you. And we recognize that. We're making it as easy as we can for you. But you're still going to have to walk through the door in order to have people in your life. For us to be the church, you have to be the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this great good news of the gospel. I thank you for your people who love you and have loved me well. I pray that you continue to teach me how to love well as I watch them love well. Father, I pray that's also true for everyone in the room, particularly those who have been on the fringe have been so identified by their own stories, their own heartbreaks, their own 
their own hurts and so much want to see their story rewritten. And I pray that this is an opportunity. Use this, renew, to renew us all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.